So yeah, basic physiology. I think we learned this in chemistry class in high school, but um, chemistry, organic chemistry, probably. Yeah, maybe a little biology too. Yeah. Uh, but the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation is pretty famous for um, pH, which is a measurement of the concentration of hydrogen ions in the blood. Um, it's interesting to note that the amount of hydrogen in the blood is so low, and that's why we use the, the log scale for it. And the equation is pH. At least the way I learned it was pH is equal to pKa plus the log of the base over the acid, so bicarb over uh, CO2. That works too. I think they... Yeah, this uh, is different. This formula is just different because this article was specifically for pharmacists, so it's an easy way for pharmacists to calculate it based on the labs that they get. Mm-hmm. Okay, so would the equation I just mentioned not work? No, it'll still work. It still works, okay. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Um, and then, yeah, they talk about the the, um, the formula for CO2 and water combining to form uh, carbonic acid, and then that dissociates into a proton and bicarb. And the carbonic anhydrase enzyme is, the, is what causes the combination of CO2 and H2O. So the, this is um, basically how CO2 is an acid, because if you have more CO2, it pushes everything to the right and uh, produces more protons. Exactly. And similarly, um, bicarb, you have more bicarb, it shifts it to the left. gets rid of protons. Exactly. Um, and then let's move on to the next section, which is your arterial blood gas, which will, of course, we see a lot in the ICU. Pretty much everyone has one. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, Eileen, do you want to tell us all about um, what you learned about normal values and what each of those mean? Um, so pretty much your normal pH, as it's listed here, um, which is the pH of blood in your arteries, 7.35 to 7.45. Um, other components that are included on the blood gas are the partial pressure of CO2, oxygen, um, your bicarbonate, and then there's this some... I've never really noticed this base... Excess. I've never really seen that. Before. I've worked at a couple of different hospitals, and I think only one of the four I've been at. Yeah, actually. So that's what this. That, so you don't yeah. That. So I, I didn't, haven't seen that. This was the first time I had heard of that before. Um, like Chris was saying, pH inverse is the inverse measurement of hydrogen ions in the blood. Um, partial pressure is CO two. There, all the normal values are listed there, 35 to 45. We actually had someone who had one of 82.8, I think. That he actually went up to 100. He did? The one of, that was I, of carbon dioxide, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Very hypercapnic, <laughs> as they said. Um, partial pressure of oxygen, that's, you know, we hear that a lot in rounds of people's SATs. Um, so, of oxygen, 80 to 100 is where you want to be at, but a lot of people have different goals. Um, you don't want to push it too high, Joe said, because then that might decrease your um, your body's natural, like, uh, drive to, to breathe on your own, instead of, like, a ventilator doing it for you. Um, the carbonate... Uh, let's see here. 
Okay. So, like when you were looking at this formula before, if you have more bicarbonate, um, that's going to push over your, uh, shift it to the formula to the left, which... So when is it high and when is it low? In what instances do we see high and low bicarbonate? It's elevated when you have, al like, an alkalotic... It's like a basic kind of component. So that would be a result in a higher pH. So this is like all going back to chemistry. I'm like the yeah. pH up is like basic, yeah. Um, so why do you make you take chemistry as a prerequisite? Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. And it's like I know it so well at that point, and then, you know, you go years, and then yeah, you don't, use it don't quite it. use it as much. So um, so we use that to kind of determine, like, if someone's in acidosis versus alkalosis, mm -hmm. using the range 22 to 26. Um, when it's lower, it's more acidotic. When it's higher, it's more al alkalosis. Yeah, exactly. I just had a clarification question. Um, as far as the O2, is that like the pulse ox or is that something different? So they actually measure it in the blood, the amount of oxygen in the blood. You can do a pulse ox too, okay. um, but that's not going to be quite as accurate as actually measuring blood from the arterial side. Because the pulse ox is a percent, and this is... Uh, this is actually measuring the, the pressure. Concentration. The amount dissolved in, yeah. in, in the blood. So I don't know if you remember when, when I talked about that um, equation for um, oxygen delivery. Uh, yeah. It was, uh, the fine print was like, okay, it's your hemoglobin, it's your percent, and then the fine print is, yeah, there's a little bit dissolved in the blood, yeah. not enough to support life. Um, so it's not counted for oxygen delivery, but enough to get an idea of how well uh, is um, gas exchange happening in the lungs. And so that's why um, it's used here. And I, actually, that's why I like to, I like to connect these, the, that pathophys to what, what Eileen's going through now, which is, okay, I look at the um, uh, PCO2 to find out uh, about adequacy of breathing, then I look at the um, PO2 to, to find out about gas exchange, and and that's why you can say something like, I bet it's not a, a PE, because mm -hmm. the patient's uh, uh, PO2 was really, really high, and we probably wouldn't be able to oxygen, be able to oxygenate this patient if they really had a massive PE, mm -hmm. their, P, their PO2 would probably be low. So, so that's how... You know, you connect that first section with the with the second, and then all of a sudden you can start to um, make some judgments about patients' medical conditions. Yeah, that's a good point. Definitely. Um, so, one more question for you. So, um, I know we don't calculate the bicarbonate. Uh, sorry, it's not it's not a reported value. So, we calculate it based on that first equation, the the pH. Bicarbonate. So I, I know it's not reported, but it's not directly measured. So it does get reported. Is does it get directly measured? So it shows up on your chem seven for sure. Not all. I don't think all arterial gases reported. I think I know what you're saying. So there was something in here where they said that it's um, that it's calculated. Yeah, it's based not. on based uh, on other um, similar to. What is it? Your LDL or, or yeah. whatever is calculated based on whatever it's measured. Right. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Because okay. in here the equation showed the carbon dioxide 
the bicarbonate and the pH. But I think something that said that bicarbonate isn't directly measured, it's calculated. Yeah, under the definition for bicarbonate. Yeah, so what is your exact question about? No, just making sure this is how we do it. They do directly measure it when they take your data sample, though. Um, and on your chem step, and they will directly measure your bicarb. Probably, probably explains why you can't always, you don't always get the same number. Exactly. Uh, when you're looking at a blood gas versus a chem 7. You can kind of use that chem 7 to, to see a low bicarb. You assume that the patient's acidotic or alkalotic, or that they might have a disorder um, <coughs> that maybe they're compensating for, maybe they're not. But yeah, you can't always match up a 22 here to a 22 there. Yeah. Okay. So Sam, maybe you want to tell us about um, the difference between an arterial gas, blood gas sampling versus a venous. What, what's the difference and why do we care? Um, it said that generally we use the venous blood sampling, um, but that there are limitations, such as instability, cardiovascular collapse, it might not actually have the acid base status um, because of the inability to detect hypoxia and bicarbia and a lack of detection from um, acid bases. Um, so why that does that does, make sense? Because you're doing the venous instead of right. So the blood that it's all the blood that's returning to the heart. So most of it is now not de- oxygenated de- anymore. But that um, there so was, very yeah, different results. More risk in the arterial. Like hematomas and I guess like, yeah, I've heard that from my uncle had one. He said it was like the worst thing he's ever experienced. Oh really? Yeah, he was like, This was absolutely terrible. And like everyone gets them and I'm like, Oh god, these poor people, like I couldn't handle it. <laughs> Sometimes like if an A line is in the patient, then they don't have to be stuck each time. Mm-hmm. If someone's drawing needing frequent blood gases, they can uh, they can put that in. Um, sometimes it's too hard to get. Like uh, you've had people um, uh, you know, trying to be stuck multiple times, and then you might decide, well, gee, maybe we could just analyze the VDG instead. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes the um, arterial so much more painful? I honestly don't. Uh, I feel like it's like, because you have to like go up here or something, and I, I feel like I looked it up, or like I read about why. I can't quite remember exactly why. I think there's but, radio. A lot of them are drawn in the radio artery. Or I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's like a, something. I one of my last rotations said, yeah, it's like up here, and I was like, oh. well, I, I'm always Sometimes. hearing people like respiratory therapists are are always actively considering, do we really need this gas? Yeah, just because it's an unpleasant uh, procedure. Yeah. For the Luckily, most of the patients in the ICU are sedated, so they yeah, feel it. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. But they went on to say that you've got to test it within 30 minutes, otherwise, um, like the, all those equations that we talked about, the conversions start happening, the reactions start happening, and you can lose the credibility of the blood. Yeah, and something more important is that there's been no clinical outcomes associated with any venous blood gas samples, only with arterial blood gas samples. So we can't really think in terms of, is this patient going to die more because of their acid-base status um, based on their blood gas? Um, 
only if we had an arterial sample would we be able to correlate those types of things. This is probably only applicable to, I don't know if it's just this hospital or not, but we have um, something on the blood gases uh, that are sent to the lab where you can order what's called a cardiac surgery profile, which is your blood gas plus they use that sample and they analyze sodium, potassium, and glucose off of it, uh, and calcium. Uh, so sometimes you're in a situation where you don't know what that patient's potassium is. Um, a Chem 7 takes an hour to get back from the lab, but a blood gas takes 15 minutes. So you can take a venous blood gas, ask the lab to do a cardiac surgery profile on it, and then you get, within 15 minutes, your um, potassium. Like you're completely ignoring huh. uh, the pH. You don't need you, you mm-hmm. all that stuff that comes back, but you're kind of... <laughs> You're actually abusing the lab to get what you need. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, mean, I, I just I mentioned it because, like you're saying, I mean, you're, you're not necessarily <laughs> correlating prognostication or yeah. maybe even diagnosis to your serious. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Cool. All right. So next up, Mina, tell us how we should approach acid-base analysis. Okay. So the first. Uh, method is to look at the pH to see if it's um, acidic or alkalotic. So anything that would be under 7.35 would be considered acidic. Anything over 7.45 is alkalotic. However, not because uh, something is is within that range, that means we should rule out uh, an acid-base disorder. So we still could have the disorder even though it's still within that range. Why? Why do you think that happens? I'm assuming because it's a, like an error in the measurements or... Probably because of compensation. Um, yeah, so your body tries to compensate. Your body says, oh my gosh, I'm so acidotic right now. I'm going to try to compensate um, and get my pH back up to normal. <laughs> or it could also be a mixed... Uh, so that's what we're... A mixed disorder. Um, step two is to determine the primary acid-base abnormality to see if it uh, has to do with your respiratory or met- uh, um, metabolic. So respiratory, you're mainly involved with carbon dioxide and oxygen. Uh, metabolic is mainly the hydrogen ion or your bicarbonate. Um, step three says so the degree of compensation for the primary acid-base abnormality. So kind of get to see... Um, if it's so, the, the listed threes it can be classified as uncompensated, partially compensated, or fully compensated. Just kind of see how the body's uh, compensating to that abnormality. Uh, step four. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. So, if your um, pH is in range, how do you know that there's something going on? Like, is it because your CO2 is out of range and that's okay. abnormal. Okay, so that's how you, that w- you would. S- that way, you would suspect that something is wrong, even though the pH comes back. Okay. Uh, so going to step four, it's um, usually whenever you uh, consider metabolic acidosis, you calculate the anion gap or difference between the anion and the cations. Um, and that should also help determine 
what kind of metabolic acidosis disorder it is. So what kind of, or what is the equation for an anion gap? How do you calculate it? So an anion gap is sodium minus parentheses chlorine plus bicarbonate. So it's dependent both on the chlorine and the bicarbonate as well as the sodium. Mm-hmm. I've always been told nephrologists to throw potassium. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm usually a <laughs> potassium, sodium. Yeah. So your pluses minus your minuses. So your. And obviously that changes your normal range by about yeah. four or five. So sodium. Use potassium instead of. In addition to. Oh, so. Yeah. Oh, so some people calculated as sodium plus potassium as one group minus your chloride plus your bicarbonate. Um, and neither way is incorrect. It just changes what value you would interpret as normal. So, so if, like, I think here they do an automatic interpretation of your anion gap, so it would be important to know, are, are they including potassium in that equation or not? So I have um, usually anything that's in the range of 10 to 14 is normal. Uh, anything greater than 20 would be considered a metabo- uh, metabolic acidosis regardless of uh, the level of pH or the bicarbonate. Mm-hmm. Uh, just trying to see. Pharmacist, Chris. I wasn't too sure what the delta anion gap is. Mm-hmm. Really, uh, I really used it before. I don't really use that one quite as much as I like I've never used it. Delta. Um, what is that? Just change of two values? Yeah. This is determined if there's a mix. Total minus the normal. How bad is it? No, I've never used that. I've never used it before either. Yeah. Okay. So. Primarily just use the regular old anion. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is saying if you've got uh, uh, two metabolic disorders. Mm-hmm. That that is when you would use that. Thanks, the sorrows are always. Yeah. It's lots of fun. <laughs> yeah. 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 Say if there's something like that going on, I have to actually like sit down and work through it myself. I think that in, in nephro, she's like, I don't think I'm gonna put a mixed disorder on the test because we were all like, ah, can't. I will be teaching that next semester, and I will not be putting mixed disorders. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to be you're teaching an afro? Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, but then they also have this very nice table for you in order to look at um, the compensatory response and to determine whether or not um, the patient is actually compensating. Because if you can identify one, then you can kind of calculate what their expected compensation would be. And if they fall within that range, then they are also um, compensating. So, since Sam, on the first day that I was here, you got to look up mud piles, so why don't you talk about metabolic acidosis? Yep. I'm looking at it. It was different, though. When I looked up, it was mud pails, which was a little bit different. So I okay. had it back in my notes, and I was like, hmm. Either way. Um, so it's a retention of acids, or a loss um, of uh, bicarb. So if we look at our labs, what will our labs look like? For the anion gap? Uh, for a metabolic acidosis. When we look at our labs, what will they look like? Metabolic. Low bicarb. Low bicarb and... Low CPS. How do you... 
originally identify an acidosis or an alkalosis? pH. pH this would be 7.35. So, so yeah. you have low pH, low bicarb. High uh, and um, high hydrogen. Would it be low CO2? No, high CO2. High CO2. High CO2. If they're compensating. Right, if they're compensating. <coughs> um, but then you have anion gap met- metabolic acidosis and non-anion gap, right? Yep. Um, and the anion gap is the mud piles. Um, and there's, um, like, risk factors. Methanol, uremia, diabetic ketoacidosis, um, paraldehyde, Isoniazid, iron, lactic acid, ethanol, or ethylene glycol, ethanol induced ketoacidosis, and salicylates. Um, those are just like the most common ones. And then for the non anion gap, it uh, I had it like this whole fair <laughs> Accrued? Yes. Um, acid. <laughs> Infusion or aldosterone inhibitors, compensation for respiratory alkalosis, um, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, renal tubular acidosis, urethral diversion, um, hyperalimentation or diarrhea or GI loss. And um, they said generally it's either GI loss or renal losses. And that has to do mostly with the chloride that's in the body. Exactly. The loss of. And um, for non-anion gap, um, you mostly just give them sodium chloride. Um, and then for that's treatment. As so, yes, that's yes. treatment. Why does that make sense, or why does it not make sense? Because you're using chloride. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. You give sodium chloride, it has chloride ions, so you're just replacing those chloride ions that are being lost for whatever reason. And then um, bicarb is usually for anion So, have you guys in the ICU seen uh, diabetic ketoacidosis yet? Yes. In one case. Oh, yeah. So, how do you treat <coughs> insulin drip? DKA. Yeah. Insulin drip? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, How about in terms of, so that takes care of the high sugar component, but typically with DKA, we also have an anion gap metabolic acidosis, right? So what do, what kind of fluids does that patient get? Trying to think of it. What does she get? Um, Did she get lactated ringers? I feel like they switch so usually for that and uh, a large amount and before insulin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would want. I mean obviously by the time the patient comes to us usually, they're like dehydrated. Uh, yeah. So if you yeah. were uh, and uh, I don't know this is a little bit off topic, but I, when I think of um, um, uh, you know what's actually happening when you when you give insulin, this uh, insulin is kind of like uh, unlocking a door into the cell through which not just glucose goes, but also potassium and water get pulled with them. Right. So, so if you have someone dehydrated to begin with, mm-hmm. and you give them insulin first, you can collapse their intravascular volume and uh, cause a cardiovascular collapse that way. So you mm-hmm. give several liters 
usually first. At, at of sailing. Yeah, and uh, I believe it's sailing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Some place I've been at you studying by card as well. Okay. Uh, so. And um, and then you um, uh, and then you begin insulin and insulin infusion usually. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I thought that, that, that they changed. I. Maybe it was someone else I was thinking of. It just stands out on rounds, like so they said. Maybe it's switching her because her electrolytes were. If off you give or enough, something. if you give enough saline, eventually yeah. your plasma is going to rep- uh, uh, resemble um, saline, normal saline. Right. So sodium is 154, right. which is higher than normal. So yeah, then they might switch. And then you know you predict that the patient is eventually going to become hypokalemic, and so then eventually you're adding potassium to the IV fluids. I want to say it gets changed to half normal. I usually think it gets changed to half normal once your labs start to normalize a little bit. You guys probably have a protocol for that, right? Makes it so much nicer. Definitely. Anything else you wanted to add, Sam, about metabolic acidosis? Just that there's interesting licorices on the list. I noted that every time it came up. What licorice can cause? For alkalosis? No, acidosis. Oh yeah, like like eating like well, like Twizzlers, like liquor, like no, the candy. Was, oh, <laughs> I don't I don't under- mean like the. I think they mean like the plants, like the if you have oh. real licorice that's made from like the oil of the plants, oh. it can cause metabolic acidosis. I was like, but what? they don't mean like Twizzlers. I was like, what? I'm so confused. <laughs> because well, Twizzlers are licorice, but they used to be made from actual licorice. Essence. Oil essence, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're not really made that way anymore. So you're at much lower risk for getting. Why would you? Yeah. So it says in here, AKA cracks very easily with administration of dextrose and saline. Why dextrose? They're they're like crazy. There's AKA and oh, that's alcoholic agonist. Okay, sorry, not DK. Okay. That's alcoholic ketoacidosis versus diabetic ketoacidosis. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having a tough discussion. Oh, sure. I hope the article's at least useful since you read the whole thing. Yeah, it was a good refresher. Okay. So that's different. Okay. So, moving on to metabolic alkalosis. So who wants to tackle alkalosis? I was going to let Chris do it next, but he... <laughs> he lost. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm trying to see what I have. I can... Go that was actually the okay. one. I don't oh, know. Yeah, okay. right. yeah that's the... Like, Metabolic alkalosis. Um, yeah, so pretty much uh, you can... What can possibly cause it? Um, well, in your body you're getting a gain of the bicarbonate, or you can, or you can lose... Hydrogen ions. Um, yeah, this confu- So this was getting chloride responsive and chloride unresponsive are the two different types. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I didn't really understand a lot of this. <laughs> Maybe someone knows a little more about it. Um, I don't remember learning too much about that. So, Mina, can you? I usually read the articles pretty thoroughly. Yeah. Um, the chem background. Didn't get too much out of the, the alkalosis part. Right okay. So I, so saw, I saw there was the vomiting because usually when you vomit, you're bringing up um, your hydrogen. acid from your stomach. Yeah, acid. Yeah. Right. Um, gastric suctioning. Anything that's coming out that's acidic. 
um, and it says here that the kidneys compensate by retaining um, bicarb, which yep. is also another cause of the alkalosis. So if you have a metabolic alkalosis, they'll draw your, a urinary sample and they'll measure the electrolytes in your urine um, to determine whether or not you would have chloride responses metabolic alkalosis. Um, if you have a low amount of chloride in your urine, then you would be considered chloride responsive. And you can actually just replace the chloride that you're losing with normal saline, your uh, sodium chloride. Because does that mean, like, so your body won't get rid of it when you replace it? Is that why? Mm-hmm. Kind of a thing? Right. Okay. Like, you lost it for some reason. Like, you got too many diuretics, um, or you've been really sick. So, mm-hmm. in addition to being alkalotic, you're probably a little bit dehydrated anyway. So, mm-hmm. giving something like sodium chloride, IV, gives you back your chloride ions in addition to helping rehydrate you. This would be one of the complications, too, of uh, gastric lavage. So, it's one of the reasons why that's not used that much in the management of uh, toxicity because you could be causing this type of uh, disturbance. It's just, it would be essentially uh, the same as with hominin almost. Um, and then I don't think they really talked much about chloride unresponsive. Um, they just said something about potassium. Yeah, so it, just that it unre- chloride unresponsive metabolic alkalosis involves depletion of K and um, excessive mineralic corticoid activity, um, but it's often associated with. Like you said, licorice. <laughs> um, and um, actually getting mineralocorticoids. So that one isn't quite seen as much. At least I haven't seen it as much. I don't know if you have, Joe. Um, and then some very weird syndromes that I've never heard of before. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said, pretty much in terms of treating chloride unresponsive alkalosis, you would just correct the hypokalemia. Um, and if you are on a mineralocorticoid, then you would stop mm-hmm. the offending agent in order to correct their alkalosis. Alright, so in terms of the respiratory? Yep. Respiratory acidosis, so when you're acidotic, so you have a lot of CO2, so it's a cause of hypoventilation. So anything that would um, hinder you from breathing normally, so COPD, asthma, um, delisted a couple of years, central sleep apnea, opiate sedatives, trauma, strokes, I'm guessing it's a big problem in the ICU. Um, respiratory disorders such as COPD, respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, and they lead to a rise in CO2. See what else they have in terms of treatment. Um, so they usually uh, put the person put the person on supplemental oxygen to maintain adequate oxygenation. Uh, severe worsening, they would um, so if you have too much CO two in your blood, what would be the best treatment? Oxygen. Get rid of it. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So more just ventilation. Ventilation. Yeah. Right. So just making sure they're able to breathe. Yeah. Um, 
high CO2 is usually why people end up on the ventilator. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you can do, you can try BiPAP or what they call non-invasive methods, and that may not be indicated or may not be successful. <clears throat> and then you would go to mechanical ventilation. So, yeah, it's not the oxygen that's doing it, it's more the gas exchange. That's, exactly. Um, so we need to have um, room for the CO2 to diffuse out of the blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're essentially saying this patient is not breathing adequately, so I'm going to do it for them. Um, and that's pretty much respiratory acidosis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the respiratory disorders are a lot easier than yeah. the pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, Can't breathe, we'll breathe for you. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, and so then on the flip side, we have respiratory alkalosis. Mm-hmm. So what is that? And why is it caused? Why do we see it? So what I heard is that it's hardly seen because it's a cause of hyperventilation. But again, you do see patients that are hyperventilating. Could be palpitations um, in terms of if they're experiencing dyspnea, less commonly nausea, vomiting. Yeah, I could see anxiety for sure. Someone was having like an anxiety attack. Yeah, you're you're hyperventilating. Hear people say, I'm hyperventilating. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm guessing you just need to uh, calm them down. Calm them down. So have you ever seen people say, I'm hyperventilating, get me a paper bag? Yes. Because yeah. <laughs> so they breathe, breathe in so the they breathe CO2 back in their again. CO2. So they're getting rid of so much CO2. What do they need? They need more CO2. Mm-hmm. So if you give them something to breathe in, it, they're just breathing back in all the CO2 that they're yeah, breathing out. I just that idea of that. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's like the super old school way to do it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Low tech? Yeah, low tech. Effective. Yeah. Low tech. Um, but that's pretty much respiratory alkalosis. I haven't really seen many people with respiratory alkalosis. No, unless, um, unless they're overcompensated. And, yeah. and so... Um, how I guess how would you get overcompensated? Um, With um, so if you just turn uh, oxygenate up too much. Uh, yeah, and it, I guess one of the things I'm looking for is that they said in the article that your body is not going to overcompensate. Somebody caused that. Yeah. So let's say uh, you got a little too aggressive with the ventilator settings, then um, that you you could overcompensate the patient. You might need to back off because you're exchanging too much CO2 out that way. Or like they note here, it can there could be um, some uh, permissive. Um, uh, a respiratory alkalosis because it might change the um, intracranial pressure. So, yeah. the head trauma, it could lower your intracranial pressure. So, it could be a purposeful overcompensation for somebody with uh, head trauma, elevated intracranial pressure, and um, then the ventilator settings would be adjusted to purposefully cause them to have respiratory alkalosis to get that therapeutic, what, what is usually an adverse effect. Uh, would instead be a therapy effect. Oh, and then they just talk about mixed acid-based disorders, which I don't really feel like I'm going to For me, it's, uh, it, it's very complicated. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, and it's, I've always found it beyond what I need to 
make a, uh, an intervention for a patient as exactly. a pharmacist. I, I mean, I'd like to understand the primary disorders because that helps me understand what are my patient's problems. And once I understand what the problems are, then I can uh, either come up with the proper solution or um, or evaluate the solutions that are um, that are already in place. Exactly. Um, I think of it the same way, like find out what the actual problem is, fix mm-hmm. the actual problem, and the respiratory or the metabolic compensation that is going along with it will fix itself. Yeah. And, and, and these mixed disorders, it, it's... Um, uh, it's just always been too complex for me to, to wrap my mind around to um, to do it. I mean, the pulmonologists uh, and intensivists have it on the back of their hand. They'll they'll be able to identify a triple uh, disorder. Um, yeah, uh, I, can, uh, I can do two sometimes. Uh, so, I can do two sometimes, but never like yeah. two. So, There's three and four sometimes. So, um, you know, there's an app for that. If you're really, really yeah. interested in it. So all of these, all, all of these tables. You don't have to go matching up. If you if you really want to be able to identify mixed disorders and you know whether the compensation is what you would expect or not what you would expect, um, a lot of people have taken those tables, made them electronic. You plug in your blood wet gas and you hit a button, and uh, and then it can analyze it for you. I mean, you know, you, you 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 don't want to use that kind of stuff unless you have some sort of understanding of what what is actually behind it. And, and, uh, which is good for, but yeah, I've never really um, focused on the mixed, yeah. <laughs> mixed disorders. I, um, I rely on others. And this, well, is, this formula is a little complicated. They are quite complicated. <laughs> yeah, they are quite complicated. But it's important to know at least um, the basis behind them um, and why they would make sense. And for if, each one. if you are, if let's say you decide you need to be able to identify mixed disorders, and you're going to use a calculator to do that. You need to understand the, the formulas and you need to evaluate the calculator that you're going to use, especially depending on the source that you get it from. I don't know um, if you uh, have used the website Global RP. I love that before. website. I love that website, <laughs> too. Um, uh, one of the, early on, I think the author had put up um, one of the new creatinine clearance equations in obesity, Salazar Cochrane or something like that. And there was a, uh, and I was just running some pretend patients through it and also doing it um, by hand. And I think there was a little glitch that he had in his script um, um, where it wasn't giving the exact answer. Now I, I emailed him, the guy's name was Dave, he's great. And he was like, oh, thanks, I'll fix that. And, and he fixed it. But <laughs> But the but the idea is like you know someone might not have done how, that. Like how do you know when when I go to my app store and I download a calculator, if I have no knowledge of the formula behind that, how do I know that I'm getting the right answer? Exactly. And so you, you do you need to have have the understanding. Check it once, fine, and then you don't have to check it again, and you can rely on it exactly. uh, for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that brings up the whole snafu of using online resources and the fact that not all of them are all accurate and so it's always good to have an understanding of where everything is coming from. Mm-hmm. But I do, I mean, I use Global RPH for so much, but um, but also anything that I use, I like to have some idea of the equation. Actually, one of the things that makes that website that was so good is he's so transparent about what equation he's using. It's yeah. displayed in the fine print at the bottom. There's also a website called, I think it's MedCalc. Okay. Um, it's very similar to Global RPH, but it's more like for physicians focused. Um, but they have all the same equations, and right underneath they have the equation that they use right underneath their calculator. So that you have an idea of which equation they use. 
I'm your own if you were his mom. <laughs>